Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. for the ability to pray. Um, we see over and over in Scripture that Jesus takes the time to pray. We see the command to pray, God. We see that our livelihood, our, our submission, and our reliance on you is shown in our prayer. And God, that we see, we see that you hear our prayers and that there's power in a prayer given to a Father who loves to give good things. And so, God, we pray that, we pray that you do a mighty work uh, this week, in our families, in our friends, in our, in our co-workers, whatever um, opportunity we have to interact with people around us, God, we pray that you do work. As we dive into your word today, God, we pray you glor- be glorified, that every distraction that we have, every issues that we are trying to understand or, or look for, God, that your spirit would just speak to our heart what he wants to speak and do with our heart what you want to do. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for the ability to to even spend time together talking about your word. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, you guys can grab a seat. If you guys want to, you can grab your uh, Bible or turn with us to chap- John chapter 1. We are finishing all of chapter 1 today, moving right along, only 20 plus more chapters to go. Um, so anyways, this has been a really, really great book. But let's just say for a second, I found out that today I had the way to make the vaccine to end the pandemic. And see, I, like, I had it, and there was no side effects, and I was going to give it to everyone free. But when people asked me about it, it di- I didn't seem all that excited. I was kind of like, eh, you know, it's not that interesting or not much information, or, or that, that maybe I wasn't really excited to share it with people. I think every single person, because of the way that this pandemic has affected us, the fact that even the way that we're doing church right now, it, it, every single person would be like, what's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you share something that could bring about life, that could help, that could, that could change our circumstances? Why would, you, why would you be so flippant with something that's affected every person to some extent on earth right now? And as silly as this is, as an intro into what I'm talking about, the world has been affected by something far worse than the pandemic. See, our world has been affected in an adverse way by sin and the culmination of sin, which is death. And every single person that has walked this earth, aside from Enoch and Elijah, and I guess Jesus the second time, right, have died. They've experienced the culmination of sin. They've experienced death. And yet here we as the church, as God's children, we carry something with us that's far greater than a vaccine, far greater than anything this world can or will ever offer. We carry with us the hope of Jesus Christ, yet we are just as flippant as I made the joke about the vaccine with it. We walk around forgetting that there is power in the name of Jesus, forgetting that there is hope to be found in Jesus alone. We walk around expecting life to just carry on in its own way with no sense of urgency, recognizing that our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our family members, our coworkers are are walking aimlessly without hope. Something's gone wrong. Either we've lost sight of our mission or we've lost sight of the value with which we have in this hope, or, or some combination of maybe both of those. 
But the reality is, the truth is, we carry with us a hope that cannot be squashed, that the gates of hell in itself cannot stop, a hope that will bring about life to life upon life beyond this existence of this physical life that we have, but in the resurrection that brings about a joy and a fullness that we all long for today. We have this hope. Yet many of us get distracted by other things, the world, the earth, the things that are around it, the toys that come within it, our own, our own security, our own comfort, and we start sacrificing that hope on the altar of something that makes our life easier. Really, the entirety of the Gospel of John is about Jesus. Instead, you can see the, the point. If you want to, you can read later in John chapter 20, verse 31. He gives us his point of what he's trying to do, that we would see that he is the Son of God, that Jesus is God, and that in Jesus, in Jesus alone, we have life, everlasting life, in surrendering to him. That's the whole point of this book. That's what the next 20 chapters are going to be about, is making much of that. And yet we today, as Christians, as children of God, walk around sometimes forgetting that we have the most hope that we could ever experience in Jesus alone. We have the answer, the true cure that the world's looking for. This section of Scripture is, is kind of more of a narrative, and what will be interesting about working through a gospel as we teach about it, sometimes you're going to pull out historical events, and sometimes you're going to pull out all kinds of information. Like in this text alone, we get 12 different names for Jesus. We get, we get the Messiah, verse 20, the prophet, verse 21, Jesus, verse 29, Lamb of God, verse 29, one who baptizes with the Spirit, verse 33, chosen Son of God, verse 34, Rabbi, verse 38 and 49, Christ, the anointed one, verse 41, Son of Joseph, verse 45, Son of God, verse 49, King of Israel, verse 49, and Son of Man, verse 51. Just in this section, there's nowhere else in the New Testament alone that you see that many names of Jesus in one spot. And what's interesting is you see these names being used by individuals that have no idea that he is who he says he is, other than they just experience that one moment of interaction, of knowing Jesus, of seeing Jesus, of coming and seeing, of being called to follow. And so, so it's a narrative section. It's a, it's a story. And what John is trying to do is he's taking history, which is why you get things where he'll say specific hours, specific times. At this hour, this happened. He's recalling history as an eyewitness, as someone that's been there. But it's a narrative as well. He's just trying to set the stage. He's trying to bring in more players. Like Danny talked about last week, John the Baptist's testimony, his witness to who Jesus is. John is just bringing in more witnesses to point to who Jesus is and where he's at. And John the Baptist was saying, I'm not the guy. And we, are not, we therefore know that Jesus is the guy, like Danny talked about last week. Every other person that John brings in is a person to show, to elevate, to point to the fact that Jesus is the guy that the hope is in Jesus, that we can live in Jesus. So John is writing kind of two levels. One scholar says it this way. He says, historically, he's trying to describe the pivotal events of the life of Jesus Christ so that through this record, we will have an accurate reconstruction of what transpired. But in addition, he's writing fully conscious that he has a readership. He's writing, he knows that we're reading. This is why he explains it. He'll say things and then say, this is what it means. He kind of gives us the, the narrative along the way. The story promotes interactions, not simply among its characters, but also between its script and its readers. John crafts his story so that we, as readers, will find a progression of ideas unfolding before our eyes. John occasionally lets us know what, that we understand more than his characters do, giving us ironic humor or a sense of impending doom. We are given insights that sometimes the characters don't even have, and this gives us a point of view inaccessible to John's historical characters. So this is a, this is a story being written, fused with history, fused from the eyewitness point of view, saying this is where it's at, this is what happened. But it's done in a way 
to, to ultimately land on Jesus is God and Jesus is where life is. And so when you look at the fourth gospel with the synoptic gospels, you'll see some, some timings di- differentiate. I don't think that's John's primary point. He skips a lot of stuff that the synoptics have already skipped because we know that this letter's in writing long after the other ones have been in circulation. And so John is, is coming about and he's giving us some information that we need to know that sets up the stage so that we can continually be over and over and over again enamored by the fact that Jesus is God and that our hope and our life and our salvation is in Christ alone. And so that's what he's doing. And so if you will, let's read it real quick. Chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, the next day. Again, we don't know if this is the actual next day or if this is just the next day or if it's meant to be transcribed or written in the sense of right after what happened, this is happening. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. This section right here, these first scripture right here, is just, again, the, the culmination. This is the second time that John the Baptist has declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God. What we see in what Danny was talking about last week, this is kind of the proof that John the Baptist was not the guy. He's standing with two of his disciples, and literally, he points at Jesus, who Jesus is, and his two disciples leave him to follow Jesus. John the Baptist is not about his own kingdom. He's not about his own purpose. If we, don't lo- if we could just not lose sight of that as his children, that it's not about us and it's about him, I'm telling you, amazing things would happen. But the concept of the sacrificial lamb was something that is not lost in any Jewish person of this day. They knew that for us to be right before God, for them to be right before God, a sacrifice had to happen. It was the whole sacrificial system that was in place. Everything, every, every Jewish person knew that there was sin and separation from God that could only be removed by blood sacrifices. So no forgiveness of sin could be granted by God apart from an acceptable substitute dying as a sacrifice. So when, when, when John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he's literally saying, here's the Paschal Lamb. Here's the Passover Lamb. This is just written with the prophecy of Isaiah about the fact that a, a lamb is going to come and, sac- and, and sacrifice for the sins of all, that we will, we will see someone, the perfect sacrifice in place. And yet what's funny is at the very beginning, the onset of his ministry, the disciples that were following John the Baptist, hear John the Baptist point to Jesus as being the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, and they still missed it. When they thought of the Messiah, they thought of the King and the one that would crush Rome and everything else. They still missed that this was a part of all of God's plan all along. So when he calls him the Lamb of God, it's, it's a very, very, very obvious point to the fact that Jesus is going to be sacrificed. The other thing that's interesting about sacrificial systems is everyone knew when you brought the lamb, you didn't bring your worst or your semi-good. You brought the absolute best for sacrifice, unspotted, unblemished, the best you had. And so by saying Jesus is the Lamb of God, he's saying he is the best that God has for us. He's the best. Goes on here and says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed him. And then Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Now, this is the first words of Jesus out of the Gospel of John, and it's a question that's so pointed. It's a question that just cuts to the heart and the core of every single one. He doesn't say, whom are you seeking? He doesn't say, he doesn't say, what do you want? The way he asks this question gets the core of like, what do you want? What answer are you looking for in life? You heard this, and all of a sudden you started following me, and they say, Really, I think 
very, very wisely, they say it this way. They say, and they said to him, Rabbi, John comes and says, which means teacher, where are you staying? When they ask this question, what they're saying is ultimately, I have more questions about this whole statement that John the Baptist just made. I have more questions. I want to understand more of who you are, but can we do it in a private setting? Can I, can I sit with you? Can I spend time with you to understand these things? And they do it in a very respectful way by saying, Rabbi. At this point, Rabbi wasn't a common used term for the teacher rabbi system that we now all understand. This was just a kind of a, a proper term, a polite way to do it. And we'll talk about that in just a second. And he says to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So in this section, we have a couple of terms that John feels it's necessary for us to kind of understand moving forward. He kind of defines these three terms. The first term is the terms of how they speak of Jesus. They call him a rabbi. Again, rabbi was kind of my noble one or master. In the Greek readers, he describes it as teacher. Now remember, Jesus speaks mostly in Aramaic, and all of the people around there are Greek-speaking at this point, or a lot of Greek-speaking. And so what John is doing is he's writing this letter trying to explain the Jewish terminology to the Greeks that don't understand it, while also helping us understand how Aramaic fits in with these things. And so he's kind of giving us these little quotes, like, which means teacher. This is what it is. And so he says it's important that we see that this is it. The second term is a Jewish eschatological term applied to the expected deliverer, the Messiah. So to every Jew, when they heard the Messiah, this was the one. This is the one that literally means the anointed one. He's the one that's going to bring us in place. In Hebrew, it's, it's a kind of a transliteration of two words. It was explained by another title, which is Christ. So when you say Messiah, Christ, you're saying the same thing. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the anointed one. That's what we're talking about here. And so he says it's important for us to understand these things. And then we get to this one that in Matthew chapter 16 is where Jesus kind of has that conversation with Peter. It says, upon this rock, which really what he's saying, that the church is the rock upon this pebble is the way that the word is used in, in Matthew, is Peter. But here, John puts it right at the beginning, where we don't necessarily know, but ultimately we know that this is something that happens. He says, your name will be Peter. Your name, you were, you were, that's right, you were Simon, you were the son of John, that's great, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you Cephas, which is, again, the, Cephas is the, the Greek transliteration of Aramaic rock. Um, the Greek equivalent would be Peter, and that's where we get this term. But what's interesting about this is that Jesus renames Peter not because of the rock he is. If you guys follow Peter's life, it's comical how kind of waffling he is when following Jesus, how much he gets wrong. But Jesus sees him based on who he becomes, who he'll become, not based on who he is at this moment. Jesus sees what he will become in Jesus. And he says this, Peter became so common for him that even when he wrote the books, he took the name Peter. He didn't bring Simon. We see the Apostle Paul in Corinthians referring to Mesephus. That name was there often. But Peter was basically the name that he was known for for the rest of history. 
because of walking with Jesus. Jesus takes us, and John feels it's important for us to understand that these are things happening. Again, he's kind of just laying out the pieces in place to go, okay, we're getting somewhere, and this is important for you guys. got to know this before I go on to what's next, before I get to the, the miracle in Cana that we're going to talk about next week, before I get to these things. you got to kind of understand these, these places, these things are at play that are happening. And then in verse 43, he says, the next day again. So, Again, right after that, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Andrew and Simon, the ones that are there. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before, you, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now what's happening here is, is all of these things, Nazareth, Cana, oh, they're all kind of around Galilee, and they're in this area. And, and we have to understand that most people look down on Nazareth in, in this area. Even the smaller towns that weren't really great, they look down on Nazareth. It's kind of like, you know how like, everyone has someone to look down on, like Ada County looks down on Canyon County. Sorry, Canyon County people, right? In Canyon County, they look, I don't know who to look that down to. Um, sorry, bad joke. No, they, but the point is, everyone has someone they do. It could be just town rivalry. But really, what's happening here with Nathaniel, because we see of what Jesus speaks of him, Nathaniel is a good Jew. He's a good Jewish man. He has followed, he's, he's followed the, the, the Mosaic law. He's, he's upheld those things. And so it's not wrong for Nathaniel to say what good can come out of Nazareth. There's really no prophecy about the Messiah, the anointed one coming from Nazareth. So whether he's saying what good can come from Nazareth as if he just looks down on it, or he's saying, look, I, don't, I can't even think or recall a, a scripture or, or anything in our, in our scriptures that talk about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. And so he says, I don't know, I don't know what, what, what's happening here. What is this? And I love, I love what, what Andrew says to him. And Andrew doesn't go, well, okay, well, hold on a second. Well, if you look right here, Let's go ahead and let's find it. Um, yeah, wait, and he doesn't, he doesn't start his study. He's like, yeah, I don't know. Come and see. Let's figure it out. Come on, come on, come and see. Let's just let's go see Jesus, and you do it. Let's talk about it. At this point, Philip has had a little bit of time to listen to Jesus kind of teach about what he's going to do. We don't have any account of what Jesus says to these disciples for that time, but when it said it was about the 10th hour, if we're going by the Jewish clock, that's about 4 p.m. If we're doing the Roman clock, it's around 10 a.m. We don't know which one it is. But again, the point of time that's in place is, is again, a reminder that this is an eyewitness. He's saying, oh, yeah, it was about noon. If you're ever telling a story, you're always telling, I think it was about 1 o'clock when I did that, when this happened. But, but ultimately, as, as Nathaniel comes to Jesus... As he walks up to him, Jesus says, says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This word deceit is unpretentious, transparent, plain-spoken, blunt. And what I love is Nathaniel doesn't correct him. Have you ever had someone like come and like behold, like declare for everyone around about some quality of your character? And Nathaniel's like, yeah, 
how do you know me? You know, like he's just kind of like, yeah, you know me, that's right. But somehow, the way that Jesus said it, the way that he spoke of Nathaniel, Nathaniel was known this way. Some conjecture we can read into this is that Philip and, and Simon and, and Andrew are like, hey, we need to get Nathaniel. He's a thinker. He's kind of always in his head, and he's studied this a lot. He's an Israelite that's upright. He's pretty blunt and unpretentious. Let's, let's bring him to meet Jesus. And so they go and grab him, and he says, hey, this is the man without deceit. There's no guile. There's nothing in this person. And Nathaniel's like, whoa, whoa, how do you know me? You, like, nailed me spot on. And then Jesus says a statement, before you were called under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't know if that was, he was sitting under the fig tree right when Philip found him, or if this is in regards to something else. There's a lot of reason to believe that this fig tree was maybe the spot that Nathaniel spent time studying or spent some time doing some other things. We don't know what he was doing in this fig tree, but it was significant enough that when Jesus said, I saw you under that fig tree, it instantly sparked in Nathaniel, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. You are a rabbi. You are my teacher. Whatever Jesus spoke to in his omniscience, in his, in his all-knowing, whatever he spoke to in Nathaniel caused Nathaniel to instantly go, whoa, you are this. You are this. And then Jesus does this really awesome thing where he, he takes Nathaniel, an Israelite that's, that's without deceit, and he takes him back to the story of Jacob, seeing the, the ladder of heaven and, and, and earth going up and down. That's what it says in verse 51. He says, he says and, and he said to them, truly, truly, again, amen, amen, what I'm about to say is authentic, true, worth listening to. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this section right here is the first term that we get son of man. The first time, it's, it's Jesus' favorite one for himself. Son of man is likely a Hebrew kind of self-description, meaning I. But it had to have carried some other connotation. We don't really know, other than in Daniel 7, it appears as the title of the heavenly person who is given ultimate authority by God. So Jesus likely picks up this term and uses it for a couple reasons. In order to avoid titles such as Messiah or Son of David or King of Israel, which were loaded with political ideas. If you notice, Jesus was always trying to run from those titles because that brought up a big political issue. And he's like, hey, I'm not just trying to stay out of that. And so he always took Son of Man. It kind of forged his own identity that would be ambiguous enough kind of to avoid those Judaism messianic stuff that could get in place. So Jesus is essentially saying when he says he's the Son of Man in this section, and when he talks about the heavens opening up and down, he essentially says, everything you've heard about in Scripture and God, everything you know about God can be known in me and seen in me. He's describing it to himself in this moment. He's saying, I'm the one that does it. So he takes him to this kind of this imagery of Jacob. If you remember the story, it's out of Genesis 28. I'm not going to do it all justice. I would encourage you to go back. But he has a dream while he's on his way from Beersheba to Haran. He stops in Bethel and sleeps. And he has this dream in which he sees a stairway resting on the earth and its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The dream was so powerful and so overcoming to Jacob that he awed. And in verse 16 through 19 in Genesis 28, when Jacob awoke from sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He called that place Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. Jesus is saying, I'm the Bethel. I'm it. I'm the one that the, the ascending and descending is going to happen upon. I'm the gate into heaven. I'm the one that everything's written about. And he takes Nathaniel, this man that, that, that understands Israel history, that understands the Jewish history, and says, I'm that man. Jesus incarnates the dream of Jacob, and Nathaniel is going to see it himself. And so this is the story of the first four 
disciples. We get more as we go on, but this is the, the first four disciples that come to Jesus. And it's, you know, it's interesting. If you look back through this text a little bit, you can see that there's a different way that each of these disciples come to Jesus, come to know Jesus. And so what I wanted to do with the, the, the rest of our time is I wanted to just stop for a second and say, even though this is character development and, and more for history about this, there's, there's something super practical for us to take today. And that's this idea, it, it, understanding of the hope that we have. If you're here today and you bear the name of Jesus Christ, well, then one would say that you are Jesus' disciple, that you are following him, because following him was not just a physical thing. Following him meant giving your life to him. And so you are a disciple. A disciple, again, just to, to be really, really, really clear, a disciple simply is someone who believes in Jesus and seeks to follow him with their daily life. Anyone who has committed their life to Jesus is called a disciple. And so if you're a disciple, you have this hope. You have a hope. We can grieve, but we grieve as those with, with hope. We have this hope in our life because we know that, that no matter how hard we work for our, our degrees and our education and everything else and how we want to raise our kids, at the end of the day, the thing that matters most is the hope we have in Jesus Christ. That's our foundation. That's what we stand on. So then why wouldn't we share it? Why wouldn't we share it? See, apart from God's grace, the sinner will never stop sinning. God's judgment will never end for those that are not with Christ. And I know there's plenty of people and plenty of scholars that have tried to, to, to minimize the, the consequence of not living a life for Jesus. But ultimately, we see in Scripture that Scripture talks about hell. It talks about an eternal separation from God. And us lessening that, us trying to make it more humane or pa more palatable is not doing anyone a good service. One scholar says it this way, can you think of any reason why we'd want God's judgment to seem less terrible to sinners? Do you want to make sinners feel better about their rebellion? So Jesus says in Matthew 28, right before he leaves, he says, go, go. He says, well, first he says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have a purpose. So if you woke up today going, I'm going to church, and I'm going to go to work tomorrow, and I'm going to have dinner with this person the next day, I'm going to go to my gospel community that day, and you forget that we have a purpose, that in that you are to be making disciples. This is not a, hey, make disciples when you understand it. Hey, make disciples when you know enough or when you feel comfortable. You know what? Make disciples after college because you're just really busy. You know what? When the kids are finally sleeping through the night, maybe you'll be a little bit more rested, then you can make disciples. No. As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, we are expected, commanded by Jesus right here before he leaves to go and make disciples. This is something that every single one of us are to do. And so I want to show you just three ways that we see people become disciples in this text alone and just encourage you, hopefully, to do the same. The first one is that people are told by a teacher or a preacher or a mentor this is why I think the church has so much tried to, to push, just come to church so that the pastor can, the professional can talk to you about it. But we do see that here in John the Baptist in verse 41, or 36. He tells his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God. He tells them, behold, the Lamb of God. And so one way that people can hear and follow Jesus is because they're told by a pastor or a podcast or a church service or any of those other things. Let me just say this really clearly. Evangelism is not just bringing someone to church. 
God can use that, yes. But that's one way we see people following the Lord, is someone declaring it, whether you want to put it on your social media, some way declaring that God is Jesus, Jesus is God, Jesus is salvation, however you want to declare it. Again, the message, we've joked about this, the message has to be a little bit clear because it's not clear. Just being nice to someone, just, I hope someone will see Jesus in me. Yes, you're expected for them to see Jesus in you, but it's still not intuitive. Someone who is, is, is a slave to sin isn't going to see that they need to be forgiven of this sin. We have to be able to explain this to them. So the first way you see it in verse 36, John the Baptist declaring, Behold the Lamb of God. I, I liken this section to the, 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 like I said, the teacher, the preacher, the mentor. Right? The church, the, 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 the people proclaiming it. The second way you see it, and I think this is the way that we should really understand is probably the predominant and the primary way with which Jesus had envisioned us to continue to move the things forward is we see it in verses 41 and 45. Brother tells brother, friend tells friend. They go. They go and say, whoa, 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 I have met Jesus. Come on, let's go. You got to meet this person. You got to see this person. And then the question is, well, how can that be there? I don't know. I have no idea. This is the primary way that I think that God wants his church to move forward because he says to all of us, go and make disciples. So that means you don't wait for me to do it. As some paid professional, we all take part in doing this. I don't get to just stand up here and teach and hope that someone hears it. I have to go and make disciples on an individual level as well. This is the point. God wants us to go and share the good news. This is what John is doing. He's saying, look at, look at all these people. Look at all these people. Look at how they came together. Jesus is by himself, and John the Baptist is the forerunner, says, this is the guy. And then all of a sudden, Simon, and then and Andrew, and Philip, and Nathaniel, and then we get Thomas, and we get all of the other disciples that work their way in. Why? How? Because of people going to people and sharing and saying, you've got to meet this person. You've got to meet this person. You've got to meet this person. I think one of the biggest issues in the church today is we've lost our awe of Jesus. And we forgot just how amazing it was in that moment for us to feel loved by a God that we have no right being loved for. We forgot how bad it was before Jesus, and then we realized the hope we have, and we then therefore, because of fear of being misunderstood, or fear of not knowing enough, or fear of just busyness, or whatever our excuse is, we stop sharing. We stop going out and telling people about the hope of Jesus. 1 Peter 3, 5 says, Peter commands believers to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. So what does that mean? That means that, yes, people will see in you a hope. How are you doing, church? 2020 has been, I don't know, a little subpar. How are you doing on showing the world hope? Because if you're showing the world hope, you know what's going to happen? They're going to ask you questions. How can you do that? Why can you be that way? How can you, how can you have peace to this? And we've seen this over and over and over again in individuals in our lives or history where people have just been enamored with Jesus and they've had a hope that needs to be defended. Because people say it doesn't make sense. Well, you're right, it doesn't make sense because it's not me. It's the Spirit of God in me. So the second way you see people coming to Jesus is by sharing it. This means that we have a hope and people want to know it. My daughters are, this is the first year they're in school, which is kind of comical, right? Because we've homeschooled them before that, so they're in school. But they, uh, they, started going, and my oldest has been trying out this idea of evangelism, and it is so fun and so incredible to watch an 11-year-old 
follower of Jesus try and figure out how to share the gospel. And I watch her over and over again. She'll ask things. She'll like, she's doing it on her own. She's trying it all. Like, I think the, 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 the conversations we've had and also the youth group and how they've played a role in it, but she'll go and she'll be like, so I asked so-and-so if I could pray for them today, and they said yes. And I was like, good job, baby. That's awesome. I'm like, why are you doing this? She said, because Jesus is awesome. That's all her answer. It's like, do you think she has the theology you understand? Well, okay, let me t- explain to you how the Trinity works. No, she doesn't know that yet. She's still working through it. She has experienced Jesus, and therefore she wants every person she comes in contact with to experience Jesus as well. Why is that lost on us as adults? She's going and asking them, can I pray for you? My other daughter's asking her teacher to come to church with her. Right, again, like, it's, it's, hey, hey, Olivia, that's not evangelism. No, I'm not going to say that to her. I'm saying, good job, baby. Share the hope you have, because the hope you have is far greater than anything this world will offer. The third way, and I'm running out of time, the third way is, is you see in verse 43, you just see Jesus say, follow me. <laughs> follow me. Just a straight road to Damascus moment where someone gets crushed in their, in their dreams and prayer and walking, or, or Jesus comes across him and says, follow me, and it's that moment of just like, you're following me. Something that's really important for us to understand when we start talking about evangelism, we start talking about going and making disciples, who changes the heart of man? Not me, not you, not my, not my daughter. God is the only one that does that work. Jesus doesn't say, hey, know about me. He says, follow me. It's not the same thing. One scholar says it this way. He said, cursory knowledge of the person and work of Jesus is not the same thing as saying yes to his lordship in our lives. Christians have frequently kind of used this I found Jesus moment, but if you think about it, really at the end of the day, who's the story about? It's about Jesus. Jesus was not lost. We were. He finds us. We see this in Ephesians. I'm going to read a nice long set of scriptures, so just kind of get in and get cozy here for a second. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. It's actually one sentence in the Greek, one word sentence in the Greek, one long one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as planned for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, there's that hope, we might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is a work of God. God is the one that does this work. Before the foundations of time, he has done this, but he has not pulled us from saying, okay, well, we don't have a responsibility. Just go away. Philippians, Philippians 3.12 says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This sentence explodes the false logic which says that if Christ has found me, we need not know we're seeking him. We, we are meant to share this news. We are meant to be out 
showing the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ. And guys, I don't know if you're waiting for a, a, an extra like kind of sign from the Lord, but I feel like 2020 is a pretty good sign that people need hope. You know, it's interesting. We just finished the election. I don't know if you guys heard about it. It's a little light news, right? We, we, we spend so much energy and time thinking about these few individuals that we think will shape culture. And yet here are 12 almost nobodies in history that changed our lives today, thousands of years later. Why? Because they said, come and see. Come and see. You, you think about it. So many of us are so afraid. Like, what are we going to say? What if, what if they reject us? What if I lose my job? We, we worry about so many other consequences around the fact that we have a hope in Jesus Christ. I, think of Matthew the tax collector. It's my favorite one. Jesus comes over to the tax booth and talks to him, which let's just say right now, culturally, that was not accepted. And that dude had just kind of made his bed in the fact that every single co-person that lived in their area would hate him because he had sold himself to the Roman Empire and was exploiting them at their expense for the Roman Empire and then making himself rich on it. So loathed, hated person. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, follow me. And you know what Matthew does the next, like the next moment? He throws a party. <laughs> throws a party for all his tax collector friends, for every single person. Can you imagine what he said when he was inviting him? Hey, come Come meet this teacher, this rabbi. Come on, you gotta meet him. Really, is he gonna accept us? I don't know, actually. He just accepted me, it's cool. But like, what does he teach about the the Mosaic law? How does he do this? Oh, I have no idea. Well, the Pharisees say something. Yeah, I have no idea. Just come and see. Guys, we forget that all we need to do is see Jesus and our life is transformed. Our life is completely transformed by the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is gonna spend 20 more long chapters trying to show us, that Jesus is the hope. Like Danny said last week, Jesus is the guy. This is all we need. We should be excited to share it more. We should say, a common thing that falls out of our mouth should be, I wanna pray for you, whether we know the individual or not. At our Thanksgiving tables this week, we shouldn't just be hoping that our actions will show up, but we should be emboldened that we would speak with confidence because the Spirit of God will give us the words to say that will bring about life in our brothers and sisters. Guys, there are people, there are people right now waking up that are our brothers and sisters that have no idea who will tell them. Who will tell them? It's on us to go tell. Why? Because God has invited us to be a part of of this beautiful story of making his kingdom here so that when he comes back, we can explore and enjoy our kingdom all together. So guys, we have the hope of Jesus. We have no real excuse to not do it. I, this isn't meant to make you feel guilty. I'm hoping it, it brings a burden to you. I'm hoping, I'm hoping you're burdened, like overwhelmingly burdened for the fact that there are people that don't know Jesus. I'm hoping that this week alone, more people hear about Jesus, not just by our actions. Yes, we need to live true to that. Please, if you are living completely as a hypocrite and then trying to talk about Jesus, it never goes well. Yes, we need to live our lives submitted to his will, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded them. That's what Jesus says in making disciples. But what would happen if every single one of us got excited about Jesus like my 11-year-old daughter did. What would happen? What would happen to our families? I got family that I'm not gonna see on Thanksgiving because of this stupid pandemic. And I, for the first time, felt emboldened to finally share the gospel to this family member. I'm like, oh, Lord, how? How now? What do I wanna do? He's stirring in us. People need to know Jesus. So come and see. 
And if you don't live a life that has a hope that needs to be defended, then you've missed something in Jesus. Where you are today, we don't need to go to the ends of the earth. We can just go to our next door neighbor. You can go to the end of the earth. Gosh, if the Lord is asking you to do that, by all means, let's do it. But we should be sharing the hope of Jesus. The band's going to come up and we're going to worship some more. But I want to challenge you guys in a couple things. Do you have hope? Do you have hope? That's a simple question. Because in Jesus Christ, the answer is always an emphatic yes. Are you living inside of that hope? Is the world around you, is your family around you seeing you focused on that hope? If you're at home and you're watching right now, do you have that hope? Do you have hope? I'm going to stand back by the prayer room for those that are here today that maybe don't have that hope. Maybe you've lost hope. Maybe you've never once surrendered your life to Jesus. Then I want to give you a chance to confess him, to acknowledge him as Lord of your life, to follow him. If you're here and you have that hope, then you have a job to do. Let me tell you right now, you clocked in and you don't get a clock out until he brings you into his throne room. That's your job, whether you're retired or working or in school, a young parent wanting to be a parent, doesn't matter. Your job, my job, our job, is because all authority has been given to Jesus to go and therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us, and with the greatest promise ever, that he is with us always. You're not alone when you have to have that awkward conversation with your family member that seems so hostile. Will you share the hope? Will you let this gospel hit you for the first time again in a long time? Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. You're like, I'm just kind of exhausted and tired and, and I've just gotten beat up by this world. Will you let this be a reinvigorating of your heart where suddenly people around you can't stand being around you because of the hope you have when everything else seems to be falling apart? Will you be the people that God has commanded us? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... We thank you for calling people like Philip and, and, and Andrew and Simon and Nathaniel, God, people that, that don't really make sense to be students. They had all passed the age of following a rabbi. They had all passed that age and were into their careers, but yet you said, nope, I got something more to do for you. Yet I love it. You tell, um, you tell them that you will make them fishers of men. As, as cheesy as we maybe made that, that statement, God, I pray that we would fish for men. I pray that we would continue to cast and cast and cast with the faith and the, and the confidence, knowing that ultimately, sooner or later, you are going to change someone's heart. Father, would we not lose sight of it? Would we have a joy? Would we have a hope that, that, that exhilarates through this life, that shows who you are, and that just causes people once and over and over again, like causes us to have to defend the hope that we have in spite of all circumstances? And Father, we pray. We pray for more people to know you, not because of our work, but because of the work you're doing in the hearts, but because of our faithfulness to submit to your spirit who is giving us the right, right things to say to the individuals that don't know you. And so God, this week especially, when we get to interact with family, God, I pray that you give us a boldness, a confidence to, to, to say something and recognize that if they reject, they aren't rejecting us, they're rejecting you, God. And you can handle that rejection, God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the ability to be used by you. What an honor.
What an honor to be used by the only one that brings hope. May we never lose sight of that value to be called into salvation and to be sharing the faith of Jesus to this world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God and love others.